Welcome to the American Reformer Podcast, promoting a vigorous Christian approach to the cultural challenges of our day and rooted in the rich tradition of Protestant social and political thought. Hosted by Josh Abitoy and Ben Dunson. Okay, welcome back to the American Reformer Podcast. I'm Timon Klein, Editor-in-Chief of American Reformer. I am again flying solo without Executive Director Josh Abitoy, who is uh, busy um, about the American Reformer business. But I am joined by a guest we're very excited to have, Nancy Piercy, um, who many of you will be familiar with. I certainly have been familiar with her work for years since I read Total Truth, probably as a college student. Um, she's written many more books besides um, but we're here today to talk primarily about her newest book, Toxic Masculinity, uh, or The War on Toxic Masculinity, rather, How Christian Christianity Reconciles the Sexes. Um, it's her latest, published this year. Um, she is also a professor and scholar in residence at Houston Christian University. Um, and thank you, Nancy, for coming on. Well, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Um, so, Nancy, let's um, begin just kind of jumping right into um, a bit about the book and uh, the topics you're covering there. I think everyone can agree or anyone who's paying attention will agree that, um, you know, Christian men, especially evangelical Christian men, they'll probably be called fundamentalists by mainstream media, um, are pretty maligned these days. They're usually accused of being, you know, almost inherently oppressive um, the media will and secular scholars will claim that the relationships, the marriage relationships these men are in are more prone to abuse than others. Um, but you you've taken issue with some of those claims. Um, tell us about that. Yes. Yeah, so this was very surprising to me because uh, like everyone else, I was familiar with the media narrative that any anyone who holds a kind of concept of male headship in the home which most evangelicals do, uh, that that turns men into overbearing, tyrannical patriarchs, makes them oppressive, makes them silence women. Um, and so, the oh, in fact, I'll give you one quote. It was easy to go online and find lots of quotes to put into the book, but I'll give you just one of them. So this was from the <laughs> co-founder of the Church Two movement, which followed the Me Too movement. And she said, the theology of male headship feeds the rape culture that we see permeating American Christianity today. So the problem with mm -hmm. these accusations is that they ignore the data from the social scientists. So the social scientists, so these were psychologists and sociologists, were looking at these arguments, these accusations and saying, where's your evidence? You know, you're making these charges. So where's your data? And so the social scientists went out and did the studies. And I, in my book, I quote some dozen or so studies done of evangelical couples. And what they found out was the exact opposite, that in fact, evangelical men who are committed to their faith, who attend church regularly, actually test out the, at the top of the charts in terms of being uh, the most loving husbands and fathers. So they they do interview the wives separately, by the way, which is important. So the wives report the highest level of happiness with their husbands' uh, expressions of love and affection. Evangelical fathers test out as being the most engaged with their children, both in terms of shared activities like 
sports and, and church youth group, and also in terms of discipline, like setting limits on screen time or enforcing bedtime. Evangelical couples have the lowest rate of divorce of any major group in America. And the real stunner, given the media narratives, the real surprise is that they test out as having the lowest rate of domestic violence and abuse of any major group in America. So this was really surprising. And I did decide to put it at the front of my book because I thought, let's get the good news out first. And most people don't know about mm -hmm. these studies. I had to go digging in the academic literature to find them. And so it, it really was the final reason I decided to write the book. Is, is we need Christians to be encouraged. We need this to get out into the churches where, you know, even in the churches. Well, I'll give you an example. One of my students, is grad students, is the leader of a, the women's movement, women's ministry in a large Baptist church. And she said, on Mother's Day, we hand out roses and tell mothers they're wonderful. On Father's Day, we scold the men and tell them to do better. So even in the churches, I think we have we have not really encouraged men with this with this good news. So that was really one of mm -hmm. the reasons I wrote the book. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you even saw that. I mean, that certainly not all representatives, but uh, you know, much of the the young restless reformed or new Calvinist kind of movement of a a decade or so ago was was kind of predicated on on that um, that sort of divide that you just described in the churches of how we we address men and how we address their roles and their responsibilities. And it does seem to be colored by, um, probably unintentionally, but colored by the narrative, uh, the broader narrative in society that you're you're sort of refuting. Um, and that, that cashed out in many ways in these men's conferences and preaching and stuff. You could see the, you know, the difference of it's all, it's all men. They're the problem. Um, if they would just get their act together, you know, everything else would be great. Um, in, in marital relationships and all these sorts of things. Um, even though given that the good news though, you do that you, you cite at the beginning of the book, um, you also, you know, understand or, or talk about that men, um, are falling behind, I guess we'd say in, in certain metrics, right? Um, employment, maybe life expectancy, these sorts of things. Um, and that these problems don't seem to animate, um, you know, people certainly in broader society in the same ways that other problems with different demographics would. Oh, yeah. Boys and men are falling behind on virtually all counts. They're falling behind in all levels of education, all the way from kindergarten up until college. Most universities now average about 60% female students and 40% male students. More women than men are going to graduate school and even to professional schools like law and medicine. So this is a huge problem that men are not getting the education they need to be successful in the modern world. And as they're adults, we begin to see the consequences of that, that men are falling behind. They're falling behind where they used to be, and they're falling behind relative to women in things like uh, being more likely to be homeless, more likely to be addicted to drugs and alcohol, more likely to commit suicide, more likely to be uh, have mental illnesses, more likely to be in prison, very much more likely, uh, more than 90% of prison inmates are male. And then they're also now falling behind in employment. And this is not showing up in the normal employment 
uh, statistics because they stopped looking for work. And so researchers had to dig a little bit deeper. And what they're telling us is that male unemployment is now at depression era levels. Depression era levels. I mean, I was shocked by that. I wouldn't have known that. And their life expectancy has also gone down. Women's has stayed the same, but men's life expectancy in the last, say, five years has gone down to the point where there's an um, article in a magazine called The New Scientist, and it was going over this data, and it said the major demographic factor now for early death is being male. So I do think it's time for us to start thinking, is there a way that we need to help support and encourage men in our culture? We need to have compassion on men today. It's true that uh, when you when you say that, people say, oh, oh, but men still end up being presidents and CEOs and Hollywood film producers and so on. Well, yeah, about 5%. But apart from the 5% who are at the top, the average male uh, situation is going down. You know, the, their life expectancy and, and, and their involvement in society is all going down. And so, you know, women have been encouraged, and that's good. Women are moving ahead in education. For example, in 1994, the Equity Act was passed, and billions of dollars have been poured into uh, equity workshops and curriculum that encourages girls and so on. There were now four times as many scholarships for women as for men for, for going to college. And that's great. Um, we have to remember that women did not were not allowed to attend most universities until about the mid 20th century. So it's amazing that they are pulling ahead and doing such a great job. And I'm glad I didn't live any earlier. <laughs> you know, I, I'm glad I didn't live before that. So it's not to denigrate women, but it is to say it's time to start having compassion on men and saying maybe we need some specialized programs that are directed to men to help them now to succeed. Mm -hmm. Well, one, one such a, uh... A specialized program we might say is is marriage <laughs> which uh you know leads to i you've, you've probably seen i know you're already we're already familiar with this work but george gilder's uh republished work now is men in marriage which i think is in 86 is what it was published as has kind of gotten a bunch of uh new attention um especially online and the thing that that i saw that was going uh viral online was where Gilder said something to the effect um, in the book, and there were specific quotes being highlighted, um, something to the effect of women being a civilizing force for men. Um, and some took this as disparaging towards men. So what is what's your take on maybe Gilder generally and his his work and even that particular claim um, that, that at least is is throughout his book in some regard? I would say marriage is a civilizing force on men. I would phrase it a little differently. Instead of saying women are, I would say the institution of marriage is because the institution of marriage has a civilizing effect on women too. You know, women can be immature, selfish, and self-centered <laughs> and irresponsible as much as men. Um, but marriage and family, it has, has a great impact on helping both sexes to become more mature and more, res more responsible. A friend of mine has six kids and she said, um, my children made a mother out of me. And I thought that was a clever way of saying, you know, I wasn't responsible hmm. until I had children. I think where I would disagree with Gilder, though, is that um, I, I think he tries to support marriage by denigrating men. And I don't think you have to do that. In other words, he says things like, you know, a man who's not married is going to be 
violent, irresponsible, sexually predatory, and um, it's poor. You know, he, he's not going to have a consistent work life and so on. And I think that he's gone so far that he actually says men have to adopt women's morality. That's his word, women's morality. And hmm. I don't think that we want to call men to adopt something that we label women's morality. We want them to adopt God's morality, right? What God tells men and women to be like. Right. And so I think he's gone a little too far in saying, well, it's women who are sexually superior. He uses that term. And by the way, you, you, I, I don't know if you realize that, but he's getting this from Ashley Montague, who wrote a book um, called the uh, the natural superiority the natural superiority of women. So Aunt Ashley Montague wrote this hmm. in the nineteen nineteen fifty three. He's an anthropologist, and so this isn't a brand new theme. It's the idea that somehow because women have children, uh, their sexual horizons are much longer term. In other words, uh, you know, a man can have a very short term relationship with a woman and disappear. But if a woman's left with a child, then that goes until age 18, right? So women's sexual horizons are much longer. And so George Gilder says, well, you see, men have to submit to the women's sexual horizon. And, and he does use the word submit, too. And I disagree with that. You, sh mm. you should not say that yeah. men have to submit to women's morality or to women's sexual patterns they should submit to God. And so, uh, and where is he getting this from? He's getting this because he's an evolutionary psychologist. At least when he wrote the book, he was. He said so in an article. Uh, he, he's, and evolutionary psychology has tended to paint men as ruthless, savage, barbarian. Let me take you all the way back to Darwin. When Darwin wrote his um, Origin of Species, Darwinian thinkers immediately began to say, Things like the men who came out on top in the struggle for survival would by necessity be ruthless, rugged, barbarian, savage, predatory. That was the language that they used. And they said, you know, instead of urging men to live up to the image of God in them, they began to urge men to live down to their animal nature, that the beast within was their authentic self. By the way, this is when the Tarzan books became popular, for example. And the, the son of the right, author right. says explicitly that he was writing the books to show that human humans are just part of the animal world and nothing more. So Tarzan retains his you know natural wildness, his natural strength, because he was raised by the apes. And even after he be, learns European languages and culture, at the end, he turns to Jane and he says, I'm still a wild beast at heart. So the evolutionary writers were the ones who really popularized this idea that men are basically, you know, inner barbarians. You know, they need to get in touch with that inner beast within. And by the way, modern ones too, jumping ahead to contemporary evolutionary psychologists. Um, for example, uh, there was a best-selling book called The Moral Animal. And the author literally says that uh, the human male is by nature an oppressive, flesh-obsessed pig, giving men a book on how to have a better mm. marriage is like giving Vikings a book on how not to pillage. So this is the language that evolutionary <laughs> psychologists use. 
And I don't think that we want to go there with them. I think we want to say, no, no, men were made in God's image. Men were created to fulfill the cultural mandate, to be fruitful and multiply, which means they are just as much, you know, naturally geared toward marriage and family, be fruitful and multiply and subdue the earth. And so in my book, in my book on masculinity, I draw men back repeatedly because it is a common issue. I draw them back repeatedly to the cultural mandate to say, this is your true nature. This is where you're really fulfilled in being deeply embedded Mm -hmm. in family and marriage and in productive work. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it also recalls, you know, that sort of approach uh, to men that uh, you're saying has been popularized. I mean, it's almost Freudian as well, of where it's like this, you know, everything is sexualized. And in order to have civilization, you have the only question is how much you can suppress that. And that's like, it's it's a simple equation for him. And and it also is making this, um, you know, this sort of sexual uh, demarcation as if, as if, you know, it's, it's male sexuality or women, uh, female sexuality that needs to predominate as if as if the two aren't required to join together to have a sexuality at all <laughs> like there's one you know as if they they can exist abstractly from one another uh, it's just very curious um the speaking of, of the sort of you know we were talking about the um you know these programs that were instituted for for you know women to be able to succeed for them to be able to get ed- education and we've we've you know gone far beyond parity um, in that regard, and now, and now, men. Maybe it's not a causal factor, but they are they're falling behind in these ways. The, just the other day, we were talking to Scott Yenner about um, what he calls America's sexual constitution. You know, claims all societies have one, and this one is um, ours has been increasingly feminized. And he he predicts it leading to a sort of post-family future based on demographic studies of places like South Korea that have done at a, at a, a greater clip the similar type things. Um, do you have any, you know, predictions about what's going to happen to family structure and the longevity of, of even the populace if we're not at birthing parity, um, if we continue on this sort of current trajectory and how we approach men? Yes. Um, one of the unique things about my book on masculinity is uh, that I draw on a lot of secular thinkers that maybe Christians aren't as familiar with. But, for example, there was uh, a book written by an anthropologist who did the first cross-cultural study of concepts of masculinity. And he says, what he, what he found was very interesting because no matter what their view of masculinity was, like some cultures might be more warlike and others are more peaceful, no matter what the differences were, they all agreed on what he called the three Ps, that it, the nature of the man, the male, is to provide, protect, and procreate, that is, become a father, have a family, build into the next generation. And I thought this was fascinating because what it means is that men everywhere, no matter what the culture is, men everywhere understand that they're made in God's image and that they do have a particular script that is biblical, whether they whether they recognize that or not, because this was a global study, so it included a lot of non-Christian cultures. Um, whether they recognize it or not, they inherently know, they innate, innately have this knowledge that to be a man, you know, to have the unique male strengths, because men are bigger and stronger than women, but their unique strengths were not given them to just get whatever they want, that their strengths were given them to protect, provide for the people that they love, and to, and to build into the next generation, to have a future. 
Uh, that's one of George Gilder's comments, by the way. He said, if men don't get connected to marriage, they don't have a sense of the future. They don't have a sense of the future because they're not having children, who, then they care about the future. But this study found that universally, men do have an innate knowledge of what it means to be a man, what it takes to fulfill a man. And so I think this gives us a better way to approach these issues. Instead of accusing men of being toxic, most men don't respond well to that kind of accusation, and who would? But instead, we can try to tap into and support and acknowledge and affirm that inherent knowledge of what it means to be a good man and to to have the masculine nature that God created them with. God has not, not left us without a witness, right? I think this is part of general revelation that we can do a study like this and find out around the world men know what their masculine gifts were given them for, how to use them in a positive way. Yeah, now in um, in your book, you also talk about, or this is a concept you you uh, use is that, um, you know, men, men are basically giving, uh, I can't remember how you put it, dueling or two, two different scripts um, that they have to operate um, by. Am I getting that right? Two competing scripts, maybe is what you say. Um, you know, how, how does this um, sort of confusing double, double script uh, play out for, for their activity? Yes. Yeah, so this was uh, a study done by a sociologist, again, not a Christian, and he found something very similar to that global study that I just mentioned. But here's how he set up his um, experiment. He's very well known in his field, so he gets invited to speak all around the world. And so he came up with a clever experiment where he asks young men two questions. First, he says, what does it mean to be a good man? If you're at a funeral and in the eulogy, somebody says he was a good man, what does that mean? And the sociologist said all around the world, young men have no trouble answering that. They immediately say things like honor, duty, integrity, sacrifice, do the right thing, be a provider, be a protector, be responsible, be generous, and stand up for the little guy. I sort of like that last one. Um, but it was amazing because he says, I was asking the same questions from what Brazil to Sweden to Australia, and they all came up with the same basic list of traits of the good man. And so then he would follow up with a second question and he would ask them, what does it mean if I say to you, man up, be a real man? And the young men would say, oh no, that's completely different. That means uh, be tough, be strong, never show weakness, win at all costs, suck it up, play through pain, be competitive, get rich, get laid. I'm using their language. And so clearly, <laughs> What men are sensing this contradiction between, like I said, the image of God in them where they can just tell you at the drop of a hat what it means to be a good man. It, that is innate. And yet, at the same time, they're feeling cultural pressure to live up to what are, well, maybe more, more of the things that we might consider toxic traits. And certainly if they get decoupled from a moral vision they can slide into things like dominance and entitlement and control. And so once again, what this is showing us, and I love it that we are hearing this from non-Christians, is that men inherently innately know what it means to be the good man. And this does give us a much better way to approach these issues. 
there's a psychologist who who writes about this too. Again, not a Christian. Um, he says what we should do is we should make an ally, an allyship with the good part of the man, and then enlist that part of the man against the bad part of the man. You know, the the good man script versus the real man script. We might say, and so. I think that's a much better way to approach these things. Can we make an ally out of the good part of the man, which is made in God's image and does reflect that innate knowledge of what it means to be the good man? After all, Romans 2, right? We all have a conscience. We all really do know what's right and wrong. Uh, and so I think that gives us a much more positive way of approaching the issue. Yeah, and it does. It, what's interesting is you were you were um, sort of listing off the traits or the virtues, I guess, of the good man that were, were universally recognized. You know, all of those um, can certainly be achieved um, and are desired by men even even prior to or apart from marriage, right? They it just within marriage they may take on a different um, responsibility and a different application. But once again, it's not um, if 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 every man is aspiring to be the the virtuous man. Um, he certainly has avenues to do that apart from marriage, which means that the, you know, the, the female sexualization or, or female sexual ethic, whatever, is not required for men to be to be good. It's it's really just an adaptation of, uh, you know, a correct moral vision that's required for that. Absolutely. Um, yes, I totally agree. Oh, go ahead. Yeah. No, no, that, that was that was. The oh, end of the OK. <laughs> yes. Yes. I think what we yes. need, we need to recover of firm conviction that men were created to fulfill the cultural mandate. And the in the in the highly streamlined language of Genesis, we can unpack several layers of meaning. So be fruitful does not mean only have a family, but historically all of the social institutions grow out of the family. So you have the family becomes the extended family, becomes the village, the tribe, the uh, eventually the nation. And so, and then social institutions form for certain purposes. Uh, the village needs a, a state, a school, a church, a, a marketplace. So it really means to, that, that part of the cultural mandate is to build up all of the social institutions, as well as the treaties and, and, and constitutions that govern them. And then subdue the earth means harness the natural resources. So, of course, most cultures start with agriculture, but then it leads to mining, it leads to technology, it leads to inventing computers and composing music. One of my students said, oh, come on, composing music? And I play the violin. So I asked him, what is the violin made out of? Wood. And what's the bow made out of? Horsehair. So all the transcendent beauty that we associate with music starts with harnessing the raw materials of nature, of God's creation. And so I come back to this over and over in the book that, yeah, you don't need to be married to fulfill the cultural mandate. You can start with, um, as a single person, recognizing that you should be deeply embedded in the social world. If not as a father, then you can be a father substitute. You can be a mentor. Research has shown that for fatherless boys, um, mentors can have a huge impact. So coaches, teachers, big brothers, and church youth group leaders can have an enormous influence. You can you can have a lot of the the personal growth that comes with fathering by being an active mentor. And so I I, I agree with you that there's there are many ways in which we can try to fulfill the cultural mandate 
whether we're married or not. And that that is man's true nature. It's women's as well, but our subject is men. But men's true nature is to live out the cultural mandate. That's not contrary to his nature. You know, the, the trouble with the George Gilder type message is he literally says it's not part of man's nature to be married and to raise a family. Here's one, uh, one quote from his book that he says, um, in order to get married and have a family, a man needs to sacrifice his most profound yearning, which is his bent for the hunt and the chase, the motorbike and the open road, the male group escape to a primal mode of predatory and immediate gratification. And what I say to that is that's not men's, that's not men's natural given a nature, you know, God given nature. He's, guilt is basically letting men off the hook. He's giving them a pass on moral responsibility because he's saying, well, men are just naturally selfish, lustful, irresponsible, violent, predatory. And then it's up to women to tame them. Well, that's not what God says. He doesn't say women have to tame men. I, I just don't see that in scripture. And and by the way, on a practical level, if men were, really were that violent and that uncivilized, what women would have the power to tame them. Men are stronger than women. What women have the power? And by the way, which women, what woman would want to, who, who would want to try to tame such a uh, violent man? At any rate, I think that uh, George Gilder is partly, again, drawing on that evolutionary psychology. But secondly, those themes started even earlier. And I see a lot of Christians going back to sort of 19th century literature where the theme first began of the male escape that, you know, that phrase he used male escape, the idea, the idea that men find their true nature in escaping was actually even prior to Darwin. It grew out of the 19th century when, um, after the industrial revolution, when men went from working on the farm and being outdoors and being physically strong and hardy, they went into offices and factories and started working desk jobs. And in the literature of the day, you start to see men being concerned that they were losing that, that sort of tough masculinity, that, that masculine strength that they had once had, that, they, that a new word entered the English vocabulary, over-civilized. There was a lot of concern that men were becoming over-civilized. And it was uh, increasingly pronounced by the fact that a lot of the reform movements of the 19th century were driven by women. So, so the abolition movement, the temperance movement, the, what was called the sexual purity movement, which, which was against prostitution and sex trafficking. Most of these movements were driven by women. Um, and so men began to say to, to, to rediscover our true manhood, we need to get, we need to get away from women and from civilization. And that's when genres like the Western emerged, right? The idea that you, you need to escape. You need to go out and, and rope cattle with the cowboys and sleep under the stars. Or you have to become, you know, a backwoodsman or all the, all the literature of the late 19th century written by men, uh, featured men getting away from civilization and out into sea, like Herman Melville and his, all of his books are set at sea. And why? He says, he literally says, because I think the sea is a place of the utmost male license. That was his term. Or you have uh, James Fenimore Cooper, The Last of the Mohicans. You have Ernest Hemingway, 
all of his books are male centric and show men getting away from civilization out into hunting, fishing, or soldiering. And so that idea that somehow men find their true self by getting away from women and marriage and civilization was a common theme already before Darwin. And then it got scientific support, supposedly, in, in Darwin. And what I see in a lot of, like the Manosphere, for example, um, is people kind of taking that 19th century theme and saying, well, that's men's true nature. No, it's not. If you, if you, you know, believe the Bible, it's not men's true nature. And that theme is very dangerous because it tells men that they have to contradict their true nature to be married and to raise children. And that just is not, has not been, that's never been the biblical message, right? It's the biblical message is no, you, you find your true self by accepting the responsibilities of home and family and children and productive work and so on. So you know, rolling up your sleeves and being deeply embedded in civilization, not trying to escape civilization. Right. Yeah. I mean, and even the um, the historical record kind of contradicts the, you know, that caricature or aspirational caricature of the, you know, the cowboy, whatever, because the, uh, you know, the West was was um, even as it was being settled was through highly communal, you know, settlements, which are not, uh, you know, the, the lone the lone ranger kind of idea. Otherwise, how would you have done it? You literally can't procreate and you can't can't get everything uh all the resources that you need in order to to establish civilization. So, you know, the, the, I think that's that's right to to cite the you know the uh, Dominion Mandate as saying this is this is civilization creation, this is cultural creation, and that requires um, you know working together with the uh, w within families and within those communal structures, and that's that's where you can express your your masculine energy that's still that is still good, but it's not meant to be detached from or escapist. Um, towards uh, civilization. Um, you, you mentioned, you kind of plugged this already though, of, you know, if we're going to uh, produce men that are, you know, embrace this kind of view of masculinity, I mean, what, the avenue to do that, the natural avenue is through families and through fathers, the father figures at least, um, in the case of broken families or, or people that have lost their fathers. Um, so, I mean, that obviously is also not an emphasis of the current culture or maybe even not as much of an emphasis in uh, Christian culture as it should be. Yes, I appreciate your emphasis, bringing that one up, because um, I, I agree with you. And um, one of the things that drives men away from becoming committed, engaged fathers is that fatherhood itself is ridiculed and mocked in the media today. Right. We, we've, we all know that, that in movies and advertisements and animations, you know, fathers are treated as though they were some kind of bumbling idiot. The, the dimwit dad, the doofus dad, uh, the Homer Simpson dad. And but most of us don't know why. Why are men denigrated like that? And, and by the way, uh, the, the upshot is that 40 percent of children today live apart from their natural fathers and and often do not see them at all or rarely. It is the highest level of single parenthood in the world. So that's what we're producing here in, in the States is a, a huge number of fatherless children. But where did that start with? Where did the de denigration of fatherhood start? Again, we have to go back to the Industrial Revolution because before the Industrial Revolution, men worked with their 
wives and children all day on the family farm, the family industry, the family business. And so the father-son relationship in particular was very strong because the father was working with his kids all day and training them in the skills that they would need for adulthood. The, the Industrial Revolution took work out of the home. And of course, men had to follow their work out of the home into factories and offices. And many psychologists say that's when the disruption in the father-son relationship started. One, one uh, sociologist said for the first time, boys experienced an identity crisis because their father was not there day in, day out as a healthy role model of what it means to be a good man. And uh, a psychologist at the time, this was a, a, perhaps the most prominent psychologist of the 19th century. He said, never in American history has the boy been so wild. In other words, because he didn't have his father's supervision, he was starting to misbehave. Never before has the American boy, boy been so wild and so half orphaned. That was his way of putting it. You know, that men are no longer engaged fathers and kids are half orphaned because all they have is their mothers now. And so boys were left, and the, the psychologist goes on to say, boys are, are being left to female guidance in the home, the church, the school. Well, a lot of boys experienced that as alienating. They could see that their mother's life was quite different from their father's life. So asking them to take their cues, their behavioral cues, their moral cues, their, their structure from women seemed to be asking them to be effeminate. And so there developed a, what historians called a boy culture, meaning that a real boy was the one who rebelled, who was rambunctious, who was kind of wild. And you can see this in the literature of the day. Uh, the best known is Tom Sawyer, right? And Huckleberry Finn. Mark Twain wrote those explicitly to contradict the earlier moralistic books, which showed boys being good boys and giving children a model of what it means to be a good boy. But now even the literature started to celebrate the boy who was kind of a trickster, kind of mischievous, kind of breaking the rules and upsetting adult culture. And so when those boys grew up, of course, they brought boy culture with them. And that's why it's one reason why in the 19th century, we see a huge increase in the sort of traditional male vices, drinking, gambling, fighting, crime, prostitution, and so on. Uh, sometimes a single fact can help crystallize it. In 1830, Americans drank three times as much as they do today. So there's a reason there was a temperance movement. Uh, public drunkenness became a huge problem in the city streets, just like homelessness and drug addiction are filling our city streets today. So all that to say that fa fathers were no longer in touch with their children because they were gone all day. And we're so used to that that we don't realize what, what uh, shock and trauma that that created at the time. In the 19th century already, you see people lamenting the fact that fathers were basically becoming weekend institutions. <laughs> fathers come home on the weekends, basically, see their children very little during the week. One 19th century woman put it this way. She said, the father is supposed to be the prototype of the heavenly father, and yet he's not home all week. He's not home except on the weekends. This, is, this can't be healthy. <laughs> So mm -hmm. already you see mm -hmm. people start to write uh, in the literature of the day that 
fathers were becoming irrelevant and even incompetent if they didn't know what was really going on in their children's lives. What were their children thinking? What were they experiencing? They no longer really knew what their kids needed because they were so out of touch with their kids. So the idea that fathers are incompetent um, parents goes all the way back to the Industrial Revolution. And that does also kind of suggest what the solution has to be. The solution has to be, can we reconnect fathers with their sons? In my book, I argue that the long-term solution to toxic behavior in men is to reconnect fathers more closely with their sons. A psychiatrist put it this way, we're not going to have a better class of men until we have a better class of fathers. And so I, I have a whole chapter on, you, you have to get practical, right? So I have a whole chapter on practical ways that we might be able to flex the workplace somewhat, um, which has become much more easier to do since the pandemic that persuaded a lot of fathers that they actually like being with their kids. In one survey, 65% of fathers said they don't want to return to the office full-time. They want to have some kind of, a, at least a hybrid model of working part-time from home. And a, a New York Times article on the subject, um, which is not in my book because it came out after my book had already appeared, but it said, fathers during the pandemic, fathers got closer to their children and they don't want to lose that. So I have lots of anecdotes and stories of mm. men who found ways to flex the work, the workplace and to work more from home and so on. And I, and I cite CEOs too. I mean, we got to, we have to persuade the business world that this is good for business too. And so I quote CEOs who said things like, um, you know, we were afraid to let people work remotely because we thought they'd slough off, right? Productivity would go, would go down. And one, one CEO said, the pandemic completely exploded that fear. People working at home actually often were more productive because they're not wasting time on the commute and they're not wasting time in unnecessary meetings and so on. And so I, I think what we, we need to show people it's a win-win. It's a win-win for fathers and their children to be more involved with their family. But it's also a win-win for business. I was amazed at how many CEOs I was able to quote saying, if you give men time to be better fathers, they're actually better workers. They're, they're more motivated. You know, a man who's happy at home is going to be more motivated and, and do a better job. So giving men the chance to be better fathers makes them better workers. Hmm, that's fascinating. I mean, I think, I think we've all intuitively sensed that the, um, you know, there, there's some kind of silver lining to the, to the COVID period because of these changes that have been made and something that's that you're bringing up, you know, on, on both fronts, both in the 19th century post-industrial revolution, and then maybe possible um, solutions or material conditions, you know, that, that just, uh, I think Christians are very bad at, at uh, recognizing and acting accordingly uh, to, to reorient their lives and, and sort of account for changing material conditions and, and realizing you have to adjust unless you want to lose more important things. But the other thing you're highlighting is sort of what I think in um, Carl Truman's latest book, he talks about the poets, the romantic poets specifically being the the, the real legislators, right? They're really setting uh, the tone. They're, they're giving you the image of what's desirable. And that's something else you've highlighted, you know, through uh, you know, t whether it's television or, or it's James Fenimore Cooper, you know, this is, has been a constant, um, almost, you know, unintentional perhaps, but maybe int more intentional more often than we realize, you know, propagandistic um, approach to restructuring family life and specifically the male's role um, therein. So 
Um, last, last question I just wanted to ask you is, you know, do you, do you have any word for um, not just Christian families, but, uh, you know, churches and pastors as well in both recognizing the causal factors you're, you're bringing up and then, and then pursuing, you know, I guess we could say creative solutions to some of these things. Yes. Well, there's one aspect of the sociological research that we haven't touched on. Um, because when I talk, we started out with the good news, right? That, that evangelical men actually test out as the, the most loving husbands and fathers. And the, um, the pushback I always get is, but haven't we all heard that Christians divorce at the same rate as the rest of the culture? In fact, in my research, I found that that's one of the most widely quoted statistics by Christian leaders. And so the researchers went back to the data and they separated out men who are really committed and attend church regularly from nominal Christians. So these are men who might claim the evangelical label and identify as evangelical, but who actually don't uh, attend church and are not really committed. And those men test out as shockingly different. They, te they test out with all the toxic traits. They are, their wives report the lowest level of happiness. They report the lowest level of engagement with their children. They actually, these nominal men actually divorce at a higher rate than secular men. They have the highest rate of divorce. And then the real shocker is they have the highest rate of domestic abuse and violence of any major group in America. So this is why people do often get a negative impact impression of evangelicals, because there are these nominal men who are there using Christian language like headship and submission, but importing secular meanings into those terms. You know, they don't hang around the Christian world enough to actually get the biblical meaning. And what they're really doing is infusing these words with words with meaning from the secular script for masculinity, like like dominance and entitlement and control. And so this is, I think, the biggest challenge for the church is to figure out what's their strategy going to be so that they can give more support to the men who are doing a good job. You know, stop the scolding. <laughs> I, I was very careful not to use a scolding tone in my book because I think men get enough of that. Um, so, uh, they have to stop that and, and learn how to support men who are doing a good job, but how do they reach out and disciple these men who are at the fringes of the Christian world, who in a sense are destroying the reputation of evangelicals because they are, they are actually toxic. And I, I've had some people ask me, well, why do you think they're actually worse than secular men? What, why would that be? Well, it appears that it's because they think they have religious justification for their behavior. So if they're being abusive to the wife or children, you know, the secular man might be doing the same thing, but he doesn't feel any religious permission or justification for doing so. But the nominal Christian man does. And so he ends up having the, the worst of both worlds. He ends up being actually worse than secular men. So how does the church reach out to these men who are kind of at the fringes of the Christian world? and help them, you know, integrate them better into the church so that they start to understand, you know, a truly Christian understanding of masculinity, marriage, family, and so on. So that, that's the, the, the two sides, I think, that um, is a call for the church. But the second one is fatherless boys. I think it's time for, for churches to have a much higher priority on fatherless boys with 40% of children growing up apart from their natural fathers. 
if they want to have an impact in the next generation, the most important one is fatherless boys. And like I said, research has shown that mentors can have a great impact. There was a, a longitudinal study, award-winning because it was such a big study, 35 years on the how parents can transmit their religious faith to their children. And the most surprising thing they found, well, two surprising things. The most surprising thing they found is that fathers matter more than mothers. If a father is a committed Christian, his children are 68% more likely to, father, to, to follow him in the faith, to follow in his footsteps and to, and to remain a Christian. Whereas for the mother, it's much lower. I don't remember the number, something like 40%. Um, so fathers are more important. My, my female students don't always like this finding. They say, well, mothers should be important too. And I'm like, well, yeah, yeah, but you know, it's a fact. I'm sorry, it's just a fact. Men have influence whether they want to or not. And so this study showed that fathers have greater influence on their children's staying in the faith than mothers do. And then the second thing they found out, which I think was also surprising, was what matters is a warm, loving relationship with the father. If the father's a pillar of the church, that doesn't matter. If the father has impeccable moral standards, that doesn't make a difference. If, if he has perfect doctrine, that's not what makes a difference. He can have all those things, but if he does not have a warm, loving relationship with his kids, his kids will not follow him in the faith. So that was an important thing for, for fathers to know, is that it's, it's their loving, close relationship with their children that counts the most in whether their children will then follow them in, in their Christian beliefs. Well, that's, that's a good word to end on. Um, Nancy, thanks so much for coming on and, and talking to me about this. Where can people um, find and buy your new book, uh, The Toxic War on Masculinity? Well, certainly you can buy it at Amazon, like everything else, or if you prefer places like <laughs> christianbook.com. And you can come and visit my new website. My publisher gave me a colorful new website, so come on over and visit it. It's nancypiercy.com, and Piercy is P-E-A-R-C-E-Y. So nancypiercy.com, come over and you can browse my other books. Uh, you mentioned one earlier, Total Truth, so you can come over and see what those are, those books are about. And you can leave a comment. I do read the comments, so it's fun to hear from you. So come on over to my website as well, nancypiercy.com. Excellent. Thanks so much, Nancy. Well, thank you. I appreciate it. Thank you for listening to the American Reformer Podcast. Make sure to visit us online at AmericanReformer.org. That's AmericanReformer.org. You can also follow us on Facebook and on Twitter at AMReformer. <laughs>